So we are at the end of our study of Nehemiah. We've been going through Nehemiah all fall. And it just so happens we're also at the beginning of Advent this morning. Which is actually perfect timing. Because what happens in this last chapter of Nehemiah is an Advent story. You might be asking, how is that? Well, let's pray and then we'll dig in to what God has for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts together, be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. Your word goes forth. It does what you want it to. Open our hearts. Change our desires so we would love your word, so that we would crave it like food and water. Enter into the depths of our desires, our motivations, beyond, way beyond our mere behavior as we encounter you in your spoken word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so there is a lot of debate about what makes us human. All right, so how are we different from the animal kingdom? And some of our best minds over the centuries have come up with different reasons. Some say we have reason. Others have said we use tools. One of my favorites is that we, as opposed to animals, use heat on our food. We cook. The one that sticks out to me the most, because all of those are true, is this one. We tell stories. And even more, we're shaped by story. You and I cannot survive, let alone thrive, without story. I mean, just think about it. We need good answers to these basic questions. Who am I? Where did we come from? What went wrong? And where are we going? Where are we going? And without satisfying answers to those fundamental questions, we will not survive, let alone thrive in our lives. And you ask any author, these are the questions that stories answer. And God knows this. In fact, God is the great storyteller. I mean, did you know that the Bible on your lap is to us not fundamentally a book of rules, but a rescue story. Scholar N.T. Wright says, We read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors. To be reminded where it has come from, and where it is going to, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. 
It's been pointed out that every religion has a book of rules. And if it has stories, the stories ride the rules. The stories illustrate the rules. In other words, they're not fundamental to the book. What's fundamental to the book is the rules. You could take the stories out. The stories just kind of help. Every religion, except Christianity, properly understood. Because Christianity, we have a book, but it's a book that tells a story. And the rules ride the story. And they're not cumbersome rules. They're, they're God actually freeing us from our own addictions. Showing us what the free, good life is. See, Christianity fundamentally is a story of rescue. It's an account, the true account, the historical account of how God broke in to make things right. And to rescue us from our own sin. And to rescue this world from the pollution of our own sin. That's what this tells you. In fact, God loves this rescue story so much that he wrote himself into it on Christmas Day. I mean, Jesus accomplished and is the climax of this rescue story. When he came that first Christmas, he accomplished his mission. But Jesus tells us in this story that we must wait. And experience tells us too, doesn't it? We must wait for the, to experience the fullness of this rescue. And that's why we have Advent. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a church and you kind of have a sort of understanding of what Advent is. And some of us were just confused. What is Advent? Well, Advent is not just a clever way to extend the Christmas party. Advent really isn't even fundamentally a season of celebration. But you know that Advent means to arrive. And what it's set apart to do is to help believers in Jesus to express their lament and their waiting. The tension that exists between Jesus' first coming and his final coming when he makes all things new. It's four weeks when we acknowledge that the story that we find ourselves in is unfinished. It's an unfinished story. Which is why it's so fitting that we're at the final chapter of Nehemiah and at the beginning of Advent at the same time. Because the end of Nehemiah is one of the greatest anticlimaxes in all of ancient literature. In all of ancient history, because that's what it is. All of ancient history, it is a huge letdown. Because after so much rebuilding, and if you've been with us, you've, you know this, you've experienced this. After so much renewal, after so much optimism, after so much excitement, after so much you know, horn blowing and celebrating and, and renewal and optimism and hope. After all of that, it all comes crashing down in the final chapter of Nehemiah. It is an unfinished story, which is why it is an Advent book for us. This last chapter in Nehemiah is really just a chronicle of three things. Failure, frustration, and futility. 
I mean, remember in chapter 10, if you take a look down in your Bibles and turn back a few chapters, when the church swore that they would obey God in three ways, they would obey God in their worship, in their observance of Sabbath, and in their marriages. So we could look at each one briefly. In chapter 10, verse 32, they promised to devote themselves to worship God, to give offerings. So verse 32 says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. This is them promising with optimism and the fullness of renewal behind them and the wind in their sails What for the showbread, the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, new moons, the appointed feasts. And they go on. Uh, they promise to give sacrifices. So in verse 34 of chapter 10, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. But by chapter 13, if you turn back, we see total failure on this count. Verse 7, I then discovered, this is Nehemiah speaking, the evil that Eliashib, he's the priest, had done for Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? He was the enemy of God's people, wanting to destroy this renewal project. Well, Eliashib apparently did this, prepared for him a chamber in the courts of the temple, the house of God. The priest basically gives Tobiah a VIP green room in God's house. So that by verse 11... Nehemiah says that God's people have forsaken the temple. Just take a look. Verse 11. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? Failure. They promised to do worship right. And we have Nehemiah chronicling for all of history, them doing it wrong. Failure in their Sabbath observance, too. So they promised in chapter 10, if you take a look, verse 31, to honor the Sabbath. It says in verse 31, if you follow along, And if the peoples of the land bring any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, hear this, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. But by chapter 13... Verse 15, we see total failure on this count. It says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain, doing the exact opposite of what they promised that they would do, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. So that in verse 17, Nehemiah has to confront them, saying they are profaning the Sabbath. So here we have a promise to honor God's house. And Nehemiah says they're forsaking it. And now we have a promise to honor the Sabbath. And Nehemiah tells us they're profaning it. Forsaking, profaning. Talk about anticlimax. This is how this book ends. 
They make marriage promises in chapter 10 of verse 30. 10 verse 30 says, We will not, they make a promise, give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now I have to stop for a second because some have twisted verses like this to argue that the Bible prohibits interracial marriage. Did you know that? This is cultural captivity and racism, but it's not biblical. This idea. I mean, it was only the year 2000 when a pretty prominent... Christian college school dropped their interracial dating ban. That's 18 years ago. Upon verses like this. But let's be clear, that's not at all what this verse is prohibiting. And there's many, many reasons for that. But let's just look at two. The first reason that this verse is not prohibiting interracial marriage is because race is not in focus, but religion. Worship. This is a prohibition to marry someone of a different faith. It's not about citizenship, but discipleship. God wants spiritual unity. Paul reflects the same thing in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7.39 when he writes, If a wife's husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. But the second reason is the testimony of Ruth. If you don't know about Ruth, but there is a beautiful marriage of Ruth, who is a Moabite, to Boaz, an Israelite. And this marriage is the most celebrated marriage in the Bible. And Jesus, our Lord, think about it, gladly has Ruth and her children in his family tree. The glory and the beauty of interracial marriage is coursing through our Savior's blood. So what they're doing is they're making a promise to marry in the Lord, to use Paul's language. But what do we find in chapter 13, verse 23? In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So, that by verse 27, Nehemiah says that they are acting treacherously against God. So let's add it all up, okay? They promise to honor the temple. Instead, they forsake the temple. They promise in in chapter 10 to honor the Sabbath. Instead, they profane the Sabbath. They make promises to honor God in their marriages in chapter 10. And instead, they act treacherously against him in that way. So this renewal project ends in failure. The other great theme in this last chapter is frustration. Nehemiah comes across in this passage, in this chapter, as a frustrated, agitated, even burnt out man. It's not a good look. You do a Nehemiah study in chapter 13. I mean, he's pulling his hair, metaphorically, and others' hair, literally, in frustration. This great leader does not end his memoirs with retirement and philanthropy. This is his his memoir, and he ends this with embarrassing frustration. 
I mean, could you imagine in our day, like a famous celebrity writing and publishing their memoir and the very last chapter of this memoir, them just chronicling all the failure that they just have experienced and are experiencing currently? I mean, most memoirs, what they do is they show the failure, but then they show how we rose out of it and we succeeded and we, and we grew and we developed and now everything's great. And the last chapter is like, look how everything is great. Nehemiah, on the other hand, he shows incredible renewal in God's house. And then he says, here's how it all failed. And look at my frustration. And it's pretty embarrassing. And the third major theme I see in this chapter is futility, utter futility. So Nehemiah faces the failure and frustration and he sort of throws up his hands with three final prayers. They're desperate prayers from a desperate person. And they are repetitive. He says, remember me in verse 14. If you take a look after their temple failure, he says, remember me in verse 22 after their Sabbath failure. He says, remember me in verse 31 after their failure to keep the Lord, the center of their families and marriages. And in the ancient world, remember me wasn't simply just a, oh, I hope you remember me. But it actually was a call to action. What Nehemiah is doing is he's simply saying, I'm at the end of my rope, Lord. you got to do something. It's kind of appropriate, actually, that the very last verse of Nehemiah is, Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is like a last gasp, like, God, you're just going to have to do something. Make something good out of this mess. Everything feels futile, Lord. We've been waiting for this renewal, and I don't know, Lord. I give up, Lord. Remember me. Failure, frustration, futility. These are Advent words. All the promise of optimism that Nehemiah builds up to is is what? And isn't this the story of your life? I mean, you make promises to God. You resolve to sort of change that issue in your life. And then two weeks later, you know, you're back where you started. Two years later, you're back where you started. Two decades later, you're back where you started. There's a word for this. Recidivism. Here's the definition. Recidivism is the act of a person repeating an undesirable behavior after they have either experienced negative consequences of that behavior or have been trained to extinguish that behavior. We love recidivism in celebrities, don't we? We hate recidivism in our own families and in our own lives. Recidivism in our celebrities, that fills the tabloids and it gives us some kind of like cheap thrill. But recidivism in our own life is so painful and frustrating. The truth is we're all addicted to something. That's the clutch of sin in our lives. And we're always returning to our addictions and to our sins. I mean, Paul says this in Romans. He says, I do what I do not want to do 
Who will deliver me from this ridiculous recidivism in my life? So like, so like Nehemiah, I want to just ask you, are you overwhelmed with your own recidivism? With your own failure, with your own frustrations, with your own sense of futility? Are you constantly frustrated? Does life with Jesus feel futile for you? Honest question. And answer it honestly. Because in that posture... Advent, the season of Advent, is a grace to you. It's a gift to you. And I want you to receive this four-week season just like that, as a gift. Here's how Advent is a gift. Two reasons. Advent gives you permission to feel those things. Frustration, failure, futility. And the worst thing that we can do, honestly, is... Ignore feelings that are connected to failure, frustration, and futility. Okay? That's the worst thing that we can do. Therapists call those ignored feelings exiles. We exile these ignored feelings, and these are the thoughts that we wish would just go away. But by ignoring them, they kind of explode in other unexpected, surprising ways of our life. It's like Pac-Man, the old school Pac-Man. Do you remember Pac-Man? You sat down, like where I, there's a Pizza King in my hometown. I love Pizza King. It's been there forever. My parents like went on dates there. And they have an old arcade Pac-Man. You sit down to play this thing, and you send Pac-Man across and outside of the screen on the right-hand side, and what happens? What happens? It just pops right back in on the left-hand side of the screen. And that's what happens when we try to ignore these feelings connected to frustration, futility, and failure. We're like, get out of here, but they just come from behind. They never go away. And Advent is a season where we can sort of just sort of bring them to God in, in full honesty. Nehemiah is grace to you. Advent is grace to you because they say to you, your story is unfinished. And you will experience these things in this unfinished story. And so don't ignore them. Don't exile them. You can bring them to God. Messy as they are. Fleming Rutledge, she writes this. She says, the church lives in Advent. That is to say, the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come. And Jesus Christ will come. We do not know the day or the hour. I love this line. My wife sent me this quote recently. And this line has so rung true in my heart. If you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. Amen? Anybody? Amen? Advent gives you permission to feel those feelings. Advent does another thing, though. It gives you hope in Jesus, and only Jesus. Advent's this great clarifying season in my life. Because I have so many hopes, I have so many dreams that are anchored in this world. And they're good hopes, and they're good dreams, I think. Someone might tell me, no, that's not a good hope, that's not a good dream, and I'll hopefully change. But my point is, all these hopes competing for ultimate hope. And Advent is a clarifying season because what Advent does is it says to us all, Jesus is your only hope, friends. 
Everything else will fail you. Only Jesus will come through. Only Jesus. There's no other hope that you can reliably bank everything on. You can't reliably bank everything on your marriage. You can't reliably bank everything on your family. You can't reliably bank everything on your bank. You can reliably bank everything on Jesus. That's what Advent tells us. And so this excruciating sort of life in between the Advents, it's excruciating, but it's also clarifying. Do you understand? Jesus is your only hope. In fact, what I love about Nehemiah 13 is that for all its failure, frustration, and futility, it points forward to Jesus in some profound ways. Where they fail in honoring the temple, Jesus comes as the true temple. Jesus is a walking temple. The presence of God in fullness. Jesus is fully God. And he comes and John says, he, God tabernacled among us on Christmas Day. It's amazing. So, so yeah, they failed at the temple, but guess what? God comes and he sends a temple for their failure. And to be for them their temple. And then later on, Paul will say, you know what, guys? Church, Peter will say this. Church, you are also the temple, not because of your good behavior, but because of your faith in the true temple. You are stones of the temple. You're living stones. And so in all of our failure, we are declared stones of his temple because we're united to Jesus and his mercy and grace. Nehemiah thrusts us towards that conclusion because we cannot honor the temple if Jesus had not. And he does. Where they fail in honoring the Sabbath, Jesus comes as our true rest. Where they fail in honoring God in their marriage, Jesus comes as their true spouse. I said, Ruth and Boaz is the most celebrated marriage in the Bible. That's not quite true. The most celebrated marriage in the Bible. Jesus and his bride which is you and he comes to us in our failure and our unfaithfulness and he says with my said love my unchanging love with my I will never let you go love I'm married to you and I will not break my covenant I, I'm swearing on myself that I will not break it no matter what you do that's the most celebrated marriage in the Bible And Nehemiah points us. I mean, if if, if I'm honest, it, it, it slams me against that truth. Because as I read what's happening in the life of the people of God in chapter 10, I'm like, that's me. I have good intentions. And I can try really hard. But honestly, that is me. I am a recidivistic. Did you hear that? That's a big word. I am a recidivistic Christian. I go back And back and back, but Jesus rescues me from that feudal pattern. This chapter turns Nehemiah gloriously into an Advent book. I mean, without this last chapter, you would almost be tempted to say, who needs Jesus, wouldn't you? God brings this renewal. Everybody's happy. They're all obeying God perfectly. And and God is now present in his house. Everything's good. And we would think, who needs Jesus? But this last chapter says, you need Jesus. And you do. And I do also. 
And that's Advent. Advent is us coming and saying, come, Lord Jesus, we need you. Let your failures, let your frustrations, yes, let your feeling of futility even point you to Jesus. You are in an unfinished story. Don't pretend otherwise. That's the freedom of Advent. There's a key prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 13. In chapter 13, he asks, Remember me, O God. This is verse 14. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his servant. And then in verse 22, he says, Remember this also in my favor, O my God. And this is the key Advent prayer for us all. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The remember prayers are Advent prayers. What I would love for us all to do this season is to sort of, with Nehemiah, throw a desperate prayer to God and say, remember me according to your steadfast love. You know what that word is? That's the marriage word. That's the hesed word. That's the covenant faithfulness word. And so let's just throw our frustration, our sense of futility to God, and he will respond with his hesed, with his faithfulness. And he has already with Jesus in his first coming. And he will again. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you put us in a season where we can be honest and just forthright about all of our struggles. Lord, I'm personally grateful that this church community that you're having me serve is one in which I can sort of say these things and it's not controversial. That we sort of get that life is hard and that church is not a place where you're supposed to pretend otherwise. But it's actually a place where we can be reminded of the goodness and grace and mercy and the presence of Jesus. And would you do that this morning, in these next three days, as we anticipate your return, next three weeks? It's in your name we pray. Amen.